0: We're listening to The Ant Hill, a podcast from The Conversation, with me, Will DeFratus.
1: And me, Annabelle Bly. And we're joined in the studio by my fellow podcast producer, Gemma Ware. Hey, Gemma. Hello. This episode, we are looking at visions of the future. We want to know what happened to the future we were promised. Where are all the flying cars and robot
2: butlers? We'll look at the history of the future and how ideas of what's ahead of us have changed over the years. And we'll speak to a sci-fi expert about the constant back and forth between science facts
3: and science fiction.
0: So what kind of a person spends their life predicting the future?
3: So I'm Anders Sandberg, senior researcher at the Future of Humanity Institute.
0: That is a wonderfully named research centre at the University of Oxford. I asked Anders how he first
3: got into future studies. So I grew up in Sweden in the 1970s and it was pretty boring so I read a lot of science fiction. And then I wanted to make that uh, fictional science real, so I started studying real science. But I always kept a very strong interest in what would the future be like. So I was, of course, reading a lot of uh, popular uh, science books about how the future would be like, uh, whether with starships or jetpacks or intelligent robots. But as I grew up, I wanted to know, how do you actually do future studies? So one of the first lessons in future studies is that you get told that futurology, that rhymes with demonology. That's not really a good term. And generally, people have been trying in all sorts of ways to do this in a bit more scientific way than looking at tea leaves or scrying into crystal balls.
0: We're going to hear a bit more from Anders later in the show and what he uses instead of a crystal ball to predict tomorrow's world.
2: But first we wanted to find out what it was like being a futurist 100 years ago. I'm going to take you on a little trip back to Italy at the beginning of the 20th century to hear about the life of a man whose work spawned an artistic and cultural movement which influenced many visions of the future that followed. When the Italian journalist Filippo Marinetti went off to the front lines of the First World War, he was thrilled to be pedalling there on a bicycle. Back in 1915, bikes were an avant-garde mode of transport, and Marinetti was an avant-garde kind of guy. He'd made waves across Europe a few years earlier when he launched the Futurist Manifesto.
4: Marinetti, who was a master um, at advertising and self-promotion, got the first manifesto published on the front page of the Paris daily newspaper Le Fouguero in February of 1909. So this really was a very bold launch of an artistic and cultural movement at this time and got a lot of attention also around the world.
2: That's Selena Daly, lecturer in Italian studies at University College Dublin and an expert in the Italian futurists. She also says Marinetti's name way better than I can.
4: Filippo Tommaso Marinetti.
2: See? So anyway, Marinetti's vision of the future was built around high praise for technology and the aesthetics of modernity.
4: So he praised in this manifesto the speeding automobile, steamships, locomotives, all of these technologies that perhaps to our eyes now may seem a little bit quaint, but at that time we're really at the cutting edge of of technology. So very famously, Marinetti in that manifesto praised the speeding automobile as being more beautiful than the famous Greek sculpture, the Winged Victory of Samothrace, which stands in in the Louvre then and, and still today.
2: It was a movement that began with literature and poetry and spread to sculpture, fine art, music and even textiles. This music that you're listening to is actually a 1921 piece called Foxtrot Futurist by the Italian composer Virgilio Mortari, who was influenced by the futurists. Marinetti's vision was as destructive and provocative as it was creative and forward-thinking.
4: He felt that Italy as a country was completely weighed down by the baggage of the Renaissance and the baggage of ancient Rome and its its classical past. And he really wanted Italy to, to stop looking backwards always and instead look to, to what the future could offer them in terms of inspiration for art and literature. And in that first manifesto, he says he wants to rejuvenate Italy which he found was very stagnant and therefore he said that everyone should set fire to the libraries, flood the museums and in this way break all links with the past.
2: With the First World War in the offing, Marinetti and his band of followers quickly agitated for Italy to join the fight. They felt that war would help bring their futuristic vision into being.
4: In one of the most famous slogans that Marinetti coined was in that very first manifesto where he said that uh, he praised uh, war as the sole hygiene of the world, the idea there should be a purging war which would rid Italy and Europe of all of its obsession with the past and they could move forward to a brighter future.
2: It took nine months for Italy's leaders to agree to join the war, during which time the futurists campaigned vigorously for intervention. When Italy did enter the war on the side of the Allies in May 1915, Marinetti and his group of fellow futurists signed up as soon as they could.
4: They were terribly excited by the bombardments. They they found this to be an inspiration also for their art and in very many, many ways putting into practice what they had preached and what they had thought about and imagined in advance of the First World War.
2: When the war ended in 1918, the futurists went through an intense period of political engagement forming the Futurist Political Party and a close alliance with Benito Mussolini and his fascist movement. The Futurist Party wanted to make Italy great again. They wanted a country that was no longer in servitude to its past, where the only religion was the religion of tomorrow. Their manifesto promised revolutionary nationalism and included ideas such as totally abolishing the Senate and the gradual dissolution of the institution of marriage.
4: But in the end of 1919, there were Italian elections and the Futurists and the fascists performed disastrously. So they they received less than 2% of the vote in Milan. And it's at that point that Marinetti actually decides that parliamentary politics isn't for him, and he withdraws. He He disbands the future political party, and he withdraws completely from parliamentary politics because he feels disillusioned, and he feels that the message that he has isn't getting through. Post-1920, futurism no longer goes down the parliamentary politics route, but it was, after 1924, very closely aligned with uh, Mussolini's fascist movement. So, while they may not have been engaged in parliamentary politics, they were very much on the side of uh, of the fascist regime, and that didn't change at all during Marinetti's lifetime.
2: Marinetti's association with fascism has tainted the futurists' legacy ever since.
4: Obviously, some some futurists distanced themselves from the movement because of this alignment with fascism, but others didn't. And it's interesting that a lot of the art of the 1930s and, and some of the 1940s is what can be described as kind of fascist pro-regime art. There are a lot of portraits of of Mussolini done in a futurist style, for example. And the futurists, while they were never the official state art of fascism because Mussolini never wanted to proclaim one art to be the state art of fascism, the futurists were still featured at official events and did uh, have this very strong alignment with, with Mussolini's regime at that time.
2: Marinetti's allegiance to Mussolini went right up to his death in 1944, in Bellagio in the north of Italy, near to the puppet regime run by Mussolini towards the end of World War II.
4: Because there was such a cult of personality also around Marinetti, and he was really the the, the focal point of the entire movement, it did rather peter out at that stage after his death and then and at the end of the war as well. So. There were surviving futurists who did try in the 1940s and 1950s to keep uh, futurism alive. And there was an interest in futurism, most definitely, but it was tainted by by fascism. And there was a reluctance in many circles to really address futurist art and futurist literature on its merits because of the, the shadow of fascism that was hanging over it.
2: Italy's relationship with futurism is still complicated, but some futurist images have remained iconic.
4: There is a sculpture of Boccioni, one of the most famous futurist artists, is actually featured on the 20 cent Italian euro coin. Just to give an indication of, I suppose, how important the futurist aesthetic is to a vision of modern Italy today. Boccioni uh, died actually in 1916. He died um, under arms. He actually fell off his horse in training, so he didn't have the um, the glory of a of a battlefield death that he may have wished for, because he was also very very belligerent. So he was never tainted by fascism, because he died before fascism actually came into being. So therefore, it's much easier to place a Boccioni sculpture on a euro coin in Italy, because he doesn't really have those other connotations and other associations with fascism.
2: And the futurists did help shape the way others in the 20th century went on to imagine what the future could look like.
4: Their aesthetic had a very profound influence on the language of advertising, for example, in the 20th century. And even today, we see... The future Aesthetic, for example, BMW recently said that they were very much influenced by the Futurist aesthetics in the design of one of their new cars. There are fashion houses that are still using Futurist prints and Futurist textiles to inspire their collections. There is still an affinity for the, for the Futurist Aesthetic even today.
2: So while Marinetti's technological, streamlined vision of the future may have been born out of a specific political moment, it has continued to resonate. Even the generic use of the word futurist today remains strongly connected to Marinetti's vision from 1909.
1: Thanks Gemma. I'm actually going to Italy this summer, so I will take a closer look at the 20 cents coin when I'm there.
2: Yeah, and we're going to put some images from those futurist artists up on our website, theconversation.com, so do go check them out. They do still look pretty futuristic, even today.
0: It's sort of weird to me, looking at some of this art, in that it it still looks you know, futuristic, uh, even though it's 100 years old, and you think, uh, shouldn't we have you know, passed through the future by this point?
1: Maybe it's because the future that was depicted in their artwork never actually materialised. One field where the futurologists seem to keep getting their predictions wrong is the world of work. In 1930, the economist John Maynard Keynes famously predicted that within a century, technology would reduce the working week to just 15 hours, and the rest of our time would be devoted to leisure. These hopes were even greater in the 1950s, when technology seemed to be developing rapidly, and it looked like robots or computers could do all the boring jobs that people didn't want to. I set out to investigate why we never got this future that we were promised.
5: In the post-Second World War period, what we see is an enormous amount of optimism about the possibilities of what technology and the state could achieve. One of the manifestations of this, I think, is something like the space programme. And also that there's a kind of a collective sense of harnessing technology for the benefit of all mankind.
1: That's Martin Parker, Professor of Culture and Organisation at the University of Leicester. I spoke to him about why we don't seem to be any closer to this shiny future than we were in the 1950s. In fact, the average work week today in developed countries is still 30 hours. And technology has meant many people now work round the clock thanks to smartphones and email. Martin thinks that one of the main problems is gains won by technology are not being shared out evenly.
5: You know, you need to be kind of clear that technology impacts on societies in very uneven, unequal ways. So even in relatively advanced economies like the UK and America, effectively what we see is huge technological gains within certain sectors. But those sectors themselves are effectively using those gains in order to increase the surplus to shareholders, or the, uh, or to narrow the margins they're operating on, and so on. Um, let's take, you know, banking for example. Now it's fairly clear that the automation of back office functions, you know, it's a fairly standard computing really for us nowadays, has allowed banks to do a lot of things with computers that used to be done by clerks, you know, people sitting at desks manually writing in ledgers and so on.
1: But that doesn't mean that the hours this has freed up is then distributed around the rest of society. Quite the contrary.
5: It's meant that banks can operate on perhaps less employees than they used to and perhaps narrower margins than they used to. But there's no evidence that the kind of surplus thereby generated is, is therefore shared. And in part, I think that's because ideas about the golden age of leisure seem to be predicated on the idea that there would be an attempt to spread the surplus time around. In practice, of course, the automation of individual jobs within individual organisations might be useful for that organisation in terms of generating surplus. But there's no state policy that then allows those free hours to be spread.
1: The way that Martin Parker sees it, the dystopian sci-fi predictions of the future were far more accurate than the utopian ones. In the 1950s and 60s, there was a faith in the idea of technocratic state planning, which has now been replaced by a belief in the market and individual agency. The result has been that, instead of a strong state policy to redistribute time and wealth, we got big corporations that control everything, and their sole aim is to maximise their profits.
5: I mean, say if we take a lot of classic science fiction movies from the 1970s, like Alien and Robocop and Blade Runner and so on, at the heart of all of those plots and those films are corporations. And the corporations are effectively acting as states. Uh, they're you know dominating the public sphere and employing whatever Machiavellian techniques they need to in order to get their, get their way. And there's a kind of schizophrenia here really between the sort of the policy makers in the post-war era who appeared to be thinking that the golden age of work was around the corner and many of the science fiction writers who instead were seeing a kind of a sort of quasi-fascist corporate domination as being our future.
1: For Martin, a happy working future depends on putting greater control into the hands of the people. Only then will the gains from technology be shared more widely.
5: For me, the the key issue in most of these debates actually gets back to ownership. So we can talk about a whole variety of different sorts of futures of work and organisation and markets and so on. But unless we get down to the nitty gritty of who actually owns and benefits from different forms of organising... I think a lot of it is really hot air. If we take the example of cooperatives, the key thing about cooperatives is that they are collectively owned.
1: In fact, Martin sees cooperatives as the hope for the future of not just work, but a healthy society in general. Their benefits include higher levels of employee satisfaction and pay, better mental health and also less time taken off sick. By their democratic nature, co-ops are smaller than the big multinational companies we are used to today they're also a lot more wedded to their local communities.
5: If we really want to think about issues about the quality of life and the future of work, we really need to regard these as being part of the sustainability agenda in the broadest sense. And that's going to require um, much more emphasis on localism, largely in order to ensure that uh, we're not kicking out so much carbon by moving things around the world. But also, I think, much more of an emphasis on smaller organisations largely because if we want to generate an economy that's broadly fairer and also that is less damaging to the environment, we need to move towards a much more locally-based form of economy, which essentially focuses on local goods rather than some sort of abstract idea of economic progress as measured by GDP.
1: I put it to Martin that localism sounded a bit too small-minded and backward rather than forward-thinking. But he's adamant that he's not proposing a return to some nostalgic past. Actually, it's about recognising that the way society is organised right now inflicts too much damage on the planet and on us.
5: We need to make something of a distinction here, I think, don't we, between the kind of globalisation of things and the globalisation of people. So in terms of you know a diagnosis about the future of the economy of work, we clearly need to reduce our carbon emissions, and that effectively means we can't be moving stuff around the world in the way that we do currently. That seems to me a no-brainer. But that's not the same as saying that we can't imagine a future of the globalisation of people. I think it's possible to imagine a kind of localist, cosmopolitan order, one that's focused on... Uh, the reduction of carbon emissions, but that doesn't necessarily turn us into a kind of a series of feudal villages in which we defend our butcher and our baker and our candlestick maker and so on. I don't think that's a necessary corollary of localisation.
1: So whether that future is local or global, or a mix of the two, many people are afraid of technology making their jobs obsolete and destroying their livelihoods. Whether it's scanning our own shopping at the supermarket or making our own bank transfers, automation is becoming increasingly commonplace. One study by the University of Oxford's Martin School estimates that nearly 50% of jobs in the US are susceptible to computerization over the next two decades. So should we fear the rise of the machines? Well, yes and no, says Ursula Hughes. She's a professor of labour and globalisation at the University of Hertfordshire and she's been in the game of researching the future of work for a while now. According to her, it's an age-old fear. I think there's a particular
6: kind of blinkered vision that sees the future of work as only being about what is in the existing economy and projecting from that and not understanding where new kinds of commodities come from. Um, But before going into that argument, I think it's quite interesting to look at the cycle, because I've now seen it, I think, probably go around at least three, if not four times. Um, I'm old enough for that.
1: It's an inescapable fact that technology destroys jobs. But it also creates new ones in ways that are hard to imagine.
6: The existing people see the loss of the existing jobs, because they tend to be very visible in the traditional areas where tr- industries traditionally were, like Rust Belt towns, you know, like Detroit or Sheffield or, you know, wherever. And you see all these factory jobs disappearing, or, you know, in uh, probably in the 19th century, jobs to do with looking after horses and coaching towns all disappeared. So, you know, if you were an uh, unemployed stable hand in the early 20th century thinking, oh my God. <coughs> You know, the motor car is going to destroy my job. You, you can't sort of visualise all the jobs that are going to be created in Detroit or, or Birmingham, you know, and the whole new auto industry that's going to be created and all the people making components for it and all the people building roads and all the petrol stations and all the jobs in the oil industry that are required to feed the petrol
1: stations. So what are the new fields where jobs are being created at the moment? Ursula identifies four.
6: One of them is biology. It's like the DNA of plants, you know, genetic engineering. The whole industry is based on just aspects of nature, if you like, for new drugs and new plants and new agribusiness commodities and so on. That's number one. Number two is art and culture. This whole sweeping of activities into the sort of scope of big multinational companies that used to be done in little local service industries. And the third one is the commodification of public services, which is huge.
1: That's the privatisation of things like healthcare and schools.
6: Fourth on her list is... The commodification of sociality itself. The growth of social media. The way in which now all sorts of things that used to be done didn't involve spending any money at all. And now you need a mobile phone, you need a a Wi-Fi, you need cables and leads and an electricity supply just to be linked into something which is about remembering your grandmother's birthday. But it's been sucked in within the scope of the formal economy. And it's what used to be outside the economy. There are hundreds of thousands of jobs connected with what I call the hidden housework of the internet. You know, content moderation, Google rating, lots and lots of jobs that nobody 20 years ago sitting down saying, oh, let's look at what the effect of automation on jobs is going to be. Nobody would have predicted those jobs.
1: Whether or not those jobs are good jobs is a different matter entirely. In fact, Ursula comments on a polarisation that's taken place between good jobs and bad ones. Especially as we heard from Martin Parker earlier, technology is often used to boost a company's profitability.
6: So the well-organised jobs where the union is represented will be the first in the firing line. You know, in the 70s, it was the skilled print workers, for instance, because they were incredibly well-paid and well-organised. So bang, suddenly overnight, there was a technology that meant any typist could do their job. Same with taxi drivers, actually. So workers are constantly having to reinvent themselves and reinvent new forms of organisation and try and fight back for some sort of security and decency. And, but they do fight back.
1: For those at the other end of the spectrum, that's the well-educated and the creative innovators, opportunities abound. To succeed in the competitive global economy, companies have to stay ahead. And to do that, they have to have the best workers and treat them well to stop them jumping ship to the competition. So what does the future of work actually look like? According to Ursula, it's pretty simple, really.
6: What I think I can predict with some certainty is that we won't have a world where robots have taken all the jobs and we're all hanging around, whether, you know, there are two alternative versions, we're all hanging around in extreme poverty, or we're all hanging around in wonderful leisure. But uh, I don't think either version of that can happen. Apart from who's going to make the robots, who's going to maintain the robots, who's going to develop new robots, you know, where the raw material is going to come from. What business model would encourage a capitalist to go out and buy robots at the market price which all the competitors can also buy them at, and make same identical products as all the competitors, which will then be distributed by robots in the same way as all the co- I mean, where's their profit margin? You know,
1: you need human labour to add value. It's um, It's as simple as that. So that's the economic reality. Yet, if history is anything to go by, it seems that every age will continue to fear the future and hope for a better one in equal measure. As Martin Parker puts it,
5: most people when they're writing and thinking about the future seem to find it hard to imagine a future which is more of the same it's almost as if instead we have futures which are necessarily rather beautiful rather attractive or futures which are extremely gloomy
0: gloomy i reckon gloomy and i for one shall welcome our new robotic overlords
1: You've clearly been watching too many dystopian sci fi films.
2: Hey, hey, don't diss sci fi. It's actually done a lot to influence the way we imagine and build the future, along with some predictions in literature and architecture. So, I wanted to speak with a couple of academics who research this. They research the history of how we've imagined the future to find out more about our enduring obsession with utopias and dystopias.
7: The history of future cities is kind of the, the history of civilization itself.
2: That's Nick Dunn.
7: He's... Professor of Urban Design at Lancaster University, where I'm also Executive Director of the Imagination Design Research Lab and Associate Director of the Institute for Social Futures.
2: Nick says that people have been imagining what the future of their cities would look like ever since they've been living together in large groups.
7: Perhaps the official um, starting point of this, if you like, is Thomas More's Utopia, which celebrated its 500th year anniversary last year in 2016. Utopia, which
2: actually means no place in Greek, was a book about an imaginary island published in 1516 by More, an English political philosopher and counsellor to King Henry VIII. Despite More's own demise, he was hung, drawn, and quartered for opposing Henry's split with the Catholic Church. His vision for the future really set the tone for centuries of futurologists and helped coin a word for their visions in the process – utopia.
7: He speculated on entirely different ways of a working week, about how we might be organised. He, he thought about sort of how cities might feed themselves – and and be arranged, and was really trying to offer a very different and alternative view. Moore's Utopia was really trying to promote a more egalitarian and equal society than certainly existed in the time he was writing it.
2: As the world began to industrialise in the 18th and 19th centuries, and more people poured into urban centres, it was the city that became the focal point for imagining the future of society.
7: You suddenly got quite dense environment for people to work, for people to live. You, of course, have the advent of artificial lighting, first with gas lamps and then electrical lighting. So now you've got a situation where a lot more things can happen in a city than had happened before. And they can also start to happen round the clock. So this really starts to inspire a lot of writers, painters, architects, artists and and other designers to, to sort of think about the, the arrangements in which they are living, they're working, they're playing, what kind of transportation they might have, what kind of lifestyles they may have. It was at the end of the 19th century when science fiction began to flourish. Writers at this point are really beginning to think about the occupation of different planets, about how our own sort of natural environment might change, what the sort of mechanised processes of industrialization might mean. So you start to get this articulation of ideas about super brains, we think perhaps about Fritz Lang's metropolis, the kind of the idea of the, the, the city being controlled by, by the ultimate sort of intelligence that's all mechanised, and lots and lots of other examples of, of artists, uh, writers uh, and other creatives really trying to take the sort of ingredients of of the industrial city, and usually amplify various elements of them so that they can play out some kind of fictional narrative that usually has some kind of apocalyptic or catastrophic element which brings the drama in in some way.
2: We often like to separate these kind of visions of the future into two, utopian and dystopian, as if everything was either fantastically better than our current environment, or something we must try and avoid at all costs. I asked Nick about his own favourite imagined futures from times past. First, we went dystopian.
7: Um, well, actually, it's one that I only I only discovered for myself about sort of 10, 15 years ago. Um, but it's it's a novel by uh, Zamyatin, Um and it's called We. Uh, and it was written sort of 1920, 1921, a Soviet writer, and it had to be smuggled out of Soviet Russia. So it was translated into lots of other languages. Um, and available elsewhere, but not in Russia till the late 80s. The story is uh, set in a sort of a glass-enclosed city, and all the inhabitants kind of live in a sort of cultural void. They're they're just there to work, and they do have relationships with each other, but even though they are um, supposedly organic beings, they're very, very mechanistic relationships. They don't have any passion, they don't have any creativity. And the story follows one of these uh, inhabitants and he kind of realises he has a a soul. So it's the whole sort of story, the narrative is all about being a big cry for individualism. Um, But what's so striking about it now is how contemporary it feels. I mean, I don't know whether that's to do with the way maybe we share ourselves on social media and perhaps some of the ways our contemporary cities look with lots of glass towers and things. But reading it now Uh, you know, in the early sort of part of the 21st century. It's remarkable, actually, how well it's aged. It really doesn't feel very dated at all. With its nihilistic depiction
2: of an authoritarian future, it was a book that clearly influenced George Orwell, and there are echoes of it in his novel 1984, which is currently having a boom in sales in the early days of Donald Trump's presidency. But the future doesn't have to be all doom and gloom. Nick explains that as a student of architecture, he was drawn to the work of Archigram, a forward-thinking group of architects working in London in the 1960s.
7: And particularly one member, uh, Ron Heron, who in 1964 proposed a kind of walking city. There's these wonderful... Collage drawings that comprise of these big—they look a bit like eggs, I suppose—but massive mobile robotic structures. And they, at least according to the drawings and 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 the writing that went with them, they kind of—they—they they were sentient. They had their own intelligence. And the idea was that, I guess a bit like animals, they could kind of freely roam around the world, moving to wherever their resources or manufacturing abilities were needed. Uh, And they could also connect to each other. So they weren't just individual cities, but they could interrelate to form huge kind of walk-in metropolises. Uh, And then they could split up again when when this was no longer necessary. It looks quite utopian. But of course, my utopia can be someone else's dystopia. And this is the very tricky thing about these two subjects, because it's it's very, very personal and uh, rather subjective how you look at it.
2: And as science fiction moved onto the screen, the division between utopia and dystopia always remained blurred. While it may feel like science fiction got more and more dystopian as the 20th century wore on, Amy Chambers, who researches science communication and screen studies at Newcastle University, told me that it's not quite that simple.
8: I'm always a bit reluctant with this sort of like distinction between utopian and dystopian because both of them have sort of a an almost positive um, role to them in the sense that both utopias and dystopias look for the future and, and either suggest that we should avoid or go forward with a particular idea. They're both sort of um, an attempt to make things better, they have a positive function.
2: Like with the Italian futurists we heard about earlier, politics has a lot to do with it. Amy points to a classic early utopian world that made it onto the big screen in the 1930s.
8: There's one that comes up a lot in texts and in sort of like the best utopian science fiction lists, Um, Is a 1936 movie called Things to Come, which was an adaptation of a series of H.G. Wells stories, which is sort of a post-war story where they're they're looking for a utopian future in that sort of interwar period. Um, And it's sort of a post-scarcity future and they're creating a utopian post-war society. Um, And so it has a sort of specific role within, I think, the the film industry at the time.
2: With the advent of television, there was a clear frontrunner when it came to depicting a utopian vision of the future, Star Trek, which first aired in 1966, three years before the first moon landing.
8: Star Trek in the 1960s shows quite utopian in the sense that it projects the future again, where we've got rid of certain problems and, and things that are plaguing contemporary society and ended up presenting something that was really quite progressive.
2: In Star Trek, everyone on Earth is living at peace under the benevolent control of a political organisation called the Federation, they're the guys who boldly go where no man has gone before. Bad things do happen, but the Starship Enterprise is always on hand to help put the universe to rights. Amy says that one of her favourite episodes from the original 1960s series is called Omega Glory.
8: They go to a planet that has two warring tribes um, that are meant to represent um, the Americans and those against them. Uh, they're called the comms and the yangs and the comms are representative of um communist powers during the cold war and the yangs were the yanks the americans and you get these two warring sides almost like a projected future of what would happen if the cold war kept going um and they've got to a point where they've forgotten what they're fighting about they've become more primitive in this ongoing fight and the enterprise goes in and is able to sort of help to uh, resolve some of the issues and, and are there as this sort of like future alternative to that ongoing war, that ideological war um, that isn't necessarily going to be easily resolved. So you get sort of quite interesting and quite um, prescient uh, allegories and narratives in the 1960s. It was incredibly political.
2: But sci-fi on screen was by no means all utopian, and there were some really dark predictions going on at the same time in the 1970s. Planet of the Apes, for example, where the future of humanity is, well, not rosy, and Blade Runner, a future in which robots and humans are living in a violent, grimy version of Los Angeles in 2019, where the sun rarely shines. More recent films like The Hunger Games, in which children are forced to kill each other as part of a giant political game, have continued the dystopian genre. Today, Amy says that a lot of sci-fi is focused around artificial intelligence, or AI, exploring what could happen if robots shift from being automatons to machines with consciousness. She points to recent TV series like Westworld and Humans.
8: Um, You've also had um, films like Ex Machina, which did um, well critically, but also introduces these ideas of a conscious AI and the sort of ethics of having um, a creation that can think for itself. So you get this sort of uh, utopian ideal of creating a future with the support of AI, of sort of advancing that technology, but then thinking about the possible... Um, apocalyptic outputs from that so it, it's something that starts off as a utopian idea and, and becomes quite dystopian as we realise that we might actually be replaced by <laughs> AI.
2: While blockbuster fantasy sci-fi films such as Star Wars have of course continued to make millions at the box office there have been a flurry of recent television series based in the near future much closer to our own reality.
8: A lot of the, the sort of the popular science fiction based series out on television have been based in um, near futures and and our reality rather than these sort of elaborate massive futures in far off space (laughs) you can do a lot with with thinking about small time jumps And and that's what i think is quite interesting about this idea of the future is that it has quite a long spectrum so the future for someone perhaps in the early 20th century is maybe very different than my idea of the future
2: most of the extreme dystopias and utopias predicted in science fiction haven't come to pass, for the time being. But when it comes to what we imagine when we imagine the future, historical designs have a habit of sticking, as Nick Dunn explains.
7: It's certainly the case that you know, speculative visions of future cities do shape what's happening uh, in reality. And, but the interesting thing about that is that whilst we're generally good at understanding what may happen, were, were less accurate in terms of where it happened. So, for example, you know, in 1908, um, uh, 1910, so early 20th century, quite a lot of depictions for the future of Manhattan, which were sort of showing it with uh, lots of different layers of, of infrastructure, so roads, railways, um uh, you know walkways all elevated up and into different sort of strata across the city so you had these different ribbons of, of flows of people and goods and vehicles moving moving around um And whilst Manhattan did have an elevated train for a while, and obviously it has its subway, it's never developed that kind of transportation system. So that never arrived in North America in quite the same way. But it has emerged you know, throughout the 70s, the 80s, the 90s and beyond in Asian cities like Hong Kong and Singapore. So you tend to see that these things have happened, but they just happen elsewhere.
2: So while we've been good at imagining what's possible in the future, these kind of predictions
7: are rarely spot on. More broadly, this this tends to be our relationship with with the future. We're we're pretty good at at working out what's going to be important, but just not necessarily why. I mean, we knew that outer space was going to be really important, but it's turned out that it was important because of things like global positioning satellites, maybe for surveillance and spying, not for colonising, certainly not yet anyway. So... The interesting thing about faction fiction is they're constantly in this dialogue throughout history and sometimes the paths kind of weave over each other and then feed back and you get these echoes over time of different ideas uh, emerging but then also the same idea sort of um, rising in popularity and then disappearing again. So they kind of move over time which is what makes the ideas of the future so fascinating.
1: there are a ton of products that have been inspired by sci-fi companies have had mixed success with things like hoverboards and jetpacks but there are things like the future food soylent sounds Um,
2: gross what is it
1: it's like a superfood that that you drink so you don't have to worry about eating proper meals anymore you just get all your nutrients from a drink i'm not sure that's the future i want well fair enough
0: So if science fiction is a bit hit and miss, then should we instead turn to the more scientific methods of academic future studies? I asked Anders Sandberg, the Oxford University futurist, how he goes about his work.
3: So one approach is, of course, to look at what's scientifically possible in the lab today and assume that in a few years it's going to be outside the lab, used in society, and then start talking about the social consequences of that. And that leads to building scenarios. And if you're really sophisticated, you soon realize, oh, it's not so much the technology that matters as, oh, how people react to it, what culture you build on it. Another approach for the people who are more statistical and mathematically minded is, of course, to try to make forecasts. You get data, you try to extrapolate uh, how much production or speed or uh, industry is going to be in the future using various mathematical methods. The problem is, of course, many of them don't work very well at all, but people actually do keep on using them because one of the biggest problems with future studies is that many people like to think that they care about the future, but they mostly want a bit of entertainment and look a bit wise. So there are many methods that uh, don't really have a good track record, but people keep on using them because they want to tell a good story about the future.
0: There's a lot of dodgy futurology out there then, but Anders says space exploration is one area where the predictions really did come to life.
3: The space movement was started by people predicting that, yes, you can build spacecraft that can actually bring us into orbit and to the other planets. And if you look back at the work of the British Interplanetary Society, they did an amazingly detailed plan for how you could put a man on the moon and bring him back again. And this was in 1939. Now, the interesting part here is that they got practically all the science right, but they couldn't predict the political realities that led to humans going to the moon and then going back and not uh, colonizing anymore. That was a total failure. But actually, the engineering part of the early space program was predicted perfectly well.
0: So these visionaries got the technology right. But no one foresaw how the Cold War would really drive the space race.
7: We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things. Not because they are easy, but because they are hard.
0: Just as we're able to predict what cities in the future might look like, but not which actual cities will become the most advanced, we're often able to predict future technologies, but not the social environment in which they can be developed.
3: There are real limits on what you can predict using data. Uh, One of the problems is that although you can extrapolate trends mathematically and it looks very nice on your computer screen, that presupposes that the conditions that are driving these trends remain the same. So if you don't uh, take into account that the underlying rules can change, then uh, indeed your predictions can be very seriously wrong.
0: Just look at social media. As recently as the late 90s or early 2000s, sci-fi could imagine a world of rocket ships, but no smartphones or Facebook. Today, one of the biggest drivers of innovation is the urge to profit from our
3: social relationships. So the interesting thing about the inability of science fiction to do do a good prediction of appearance of social media uh, is that it should in some sense have been totally obvious that something like that was important. Because we are social beings, we love communicating, we do it all day. So obviously a technology that could uh, do that better for us would be a big deal and would indeed change society. But the problem in predicting technologies like that is that it's very obvious in retrospect, but it's very hard to predict an idea before you have it.
0: With social media, futurists weren't surprised by the technology itself. After all, there's nothing too groundbreaking about a well-designed app or algorithm. What was surprising was how social media came to be used.
3: We can't predict that beforehand because it's something we put in as users. Twitter doesn't have a meaning without what the meanings the users put in. So the problem for the futurist is predicting anything that has this enormous idea, culture, component, is that it's going to be fundamentally unpredictable.
0: These social trends are hard to predict, as are many natural events. Some, like an asteroid impact, can be totally random. Others are almost impossible to predict accurately – Like, for instance, what the weather will be like on a particular day many months from now. So how does a futurist account for such uncertainty?
3: One of the ways of dealing with all this is to take a bit more philosophical standpoint, take a step back, and instead of uh, looking at too much data, too much number, and trying to figure out where the flying cars are, think about what do people want? What are the overall patterns of history? And... If history doesn't repeat itself but rhymes, what things might rhyme with the current situation? Have you seen something like this before? What would be similar and different? And can we actually make a judgment on what is likely to happen?
0: I asked Anders how you would apply this sort of thinking to the year 2100.
3: So when looking at uh, some relatively mid-term future like uh, 2100, it wouldn't surprise me that uh, you would recognise a lot of government institutions, even though their meanings might have shifted quite tremendously. The problem is, of course, the underlying culture and social assumptions might have changed enormously.
0: He illustrates this point with a nice thought experiment.
3: Uh, I like to point out that a time traveler going from 1900 to 1950 uh, would be astounded by the technological advances, but it would feel quite at home with the social structures. A time traveler from 1950 going to the year 2000 uh, would not be terribly impressed by the technology change. There are still cars and the TV is in color, but that's not too impressive. But the social changes, the role of women and homosexuals, uh, globalization, would have been enormous and shocking to him. So the 2100 is very hard to predict in uh, detail, and especially in terms of how it actually would work. But we can look at abstractions. And generally, when you want to go further out in the future, it's better to look at humanity on a rather high abstract level. So we can say that historically, we have grown richer and richer at an exponential rate of about 2% per year for the past 2,000 years.
0: So are these long-term trends good news?
3: Unless something very dramatic happens, we should expect that. We have grown in knowledge, etc. So we should expect this future to be much richer much healthier and have a lot more knowledge than we do. So you get a lot of possibilities here, but it's better to look at it on a fairly abstract level rather than what political party is going to rule the US in a uh, hundred years' time.
0: Anders uses the same method to peer into the really far future.
3: At this point, we can't say very much about what advanced humans or alien civilization are doing, but we still know that the laws of physics are constraining them. So I can uh, use physics to say that in a trillion years, uh, the background temperature of the universe is going to be at a certain level. And this has actually some implication for what kind of computing you can do. So assuming civilizations want to do computations, which I think underlies actually thinking of all kinds, then you can actually start pointing out some of the constraints of what civilizations in a trillion years will be doing. Although we have no clue what we will be thinking about, what we care about, we can still say how much thinking we can do and what we need to do in order to achieve that.
0: This is the mind-blowing idea that the universe is so vast that somewhere out there, a civilization will be pushing at the limits of what's physically possible.
3: That is what life and intelligence generally tend to do. Uh, life tends to evolve and try to find ways into new ecological niches. Sometimes it takes a long while, but uh, generally an evolution is pretty good at searching for solutions. Intelligence is even better. We can come up with way of jumping gaps that evolution, which is pretty short-sighted, cannot do. It's a pretty likely prediction that in the long run, all technological possible things will be doable.
0: So to assess the far future, people like Anders view the entirety of human civilization simply as a species filling an ecological niche and eventually exploring the physical possibilities of the universe. But when your day job involves this sort of incredibly zoomed out thinking, do you stop caring about day-to-day news? I asked Anders whether futurists still worry about who is in the White House or whether a country leaves the
3: EU. Some politics do matter. The Cold War uh, brought humanity closer to extinction than anything uh, before. Uh, so, certainly, political events have very big effects. And uh, individual politicians might have less effect than they like to think. Uh, but you do see uh, big trends, and sometimes individuals can uh, cause and stop uh, or stop them. And so the historian David Christian, who's a big proponent of what he calls big history, once had a very nice analogy. On the small scale, history is like quantum mechanics. It's a lot of random things, individuals doing this and that, uh, and things just happening. On the large scales, it moves over like to classical mechanics. And just like when you zoom out from the atom scale towards molecules and larger things, things become more regular.
0: For Anders, Trump or Brexit or Syria are small-scale history. They're chaotic and unpredictable. For him, new technologies are more important because they will be around forever as part of this regular progression of a larger-scale history. One example of new technology comes from Go, an incredibly complex board game played in East Asia. Last year, for the first time, a computer beat the best human at Go many years ahead of schedule. Anders was excited.
3: When AlphaGo won uh, against humans, that was another demonstration that machine learning is here to stay and is getting very, very powerful. And that's going to be an influence that is going to be around all the time. Whatever we do about globalization or the European Union, that is a relatively local thing.
0: Politics in 2017 may seem a bit scary, but this can be balanced out by progress in other areas. Here's the futurist case for being optimistic.
3: I think it's useful sometimes when the news is getting you down uh, to realize that actually things could be way worse. They have been worse historically. If we think about our current problems, they're nothing compared to how it was to live during uh, the Black Plague or the Thirty Years' War. And actually, quite a lot of trends are going in the right direction. Now, it might be, of course, that social media or artificial intelligence or something else completely changes the rules for how our society and civilization works, and maybe even in a darker direction. But that is something we can investigate. We can actually make scenarios of what can go wrong. And then we can start thinking about how do we fix that before it happens. And just
0: how wrong could things go? To find out more about how Anders ranks nuclear wars versus mass terrorism or an evil matrix-like artificial intelligence and what to do about all these risks, I recommend you check out an article you wrote for The Conversation a few years ago, The Five Biggest Threats to Human Existence.
1: That's it for this episode of The Ant Hill on the Future. We'll be back next month when we'll be bringing you stories about waste. Remember, one person's waste could be another person's treasure. A big thanks to all the academics who spoke to us for this episode and to the journalism department at City University for letting us use their studios. This episode of The Ant Hill was produced by Gemma Ware and me, Annabelle Bly. The
0: Ant Hill is brought to you by The Conversation UK. We are a news analysis website funded by UK universities and research bodies. Check us out at theconversation.com and do follow us on Twitter at Conversation UK or on Facebook too. If you enjoy the show, please tell your friends to subscribe and do tell us what you think by writing us a review on iTunes or on whichever platform you get your podcast. Thanks for listening in. Goodbye.
1: Goodbye. Goodbye. Goodbye.